Are you glad to be here? I think we're going to hit spring this week. Yeah. make you break on the worst of, you know, not much well, okay, after that long winter. First, eventually, was here, um, it was that, you know, the year of the, the mass flood in 97. It was interesting, that first kind of break in the weather, every single person in Montevideo was outside. We were convinced that I've never seen that many bikes and walkers and and we were like, wow, you know, okay, everybody's getting out after having been here this many years, we understand why now. Um, so this week, we're going to 70, I think. I'm just going to stand out and I'm just going to break, break into tears. I'm just going to leave out loud. So. Let's pray. God, thank you for this beautiful day. Thank you, Lord, that um, spring is here. Of new life, and uh, Lord, it reminds us of the new life that we have in in Christ. Lord, we just thank you for your love, your grace. So thank you again for your word. And as Lord, as we dive into your word, Jesus, and we look at you and we glance at you, and we just want to we want to just lift you up and just put you on display of who you say that you are. Lord, I pray that our hearts would be tender to receive you. In a new way, and what uh, as we look at this, this question that everyone must answer about the outside for being tuned to you in Jesus' name. Amen. I was kind of scrolling up and using the spring thing to tell them something spiritual. So that we, we do those things, so that play over me is amazing. Come on, guys. Usually, when somebody wants to pray for me, I'm the pastor's in the room. You know what they do. Are you guys enjoying the story as much as I am? I, I, I absolutely love this. Um, for you guys that didn't acknowledge me and them, that's okay. Um, I'm just thoroughly enjoying this. Just looking at scripture. This, everything, all these things point to redemption and rescue and, and Jesus. And, so we continue this in, in the Gospels in, uh, in Jesus. Over the past couple of weeks, we've been looking at the life and the ministry of Jesus. Um, we saw how he came. We kind of did a little bit of that uh, Christmas in March, but we looked at it from the, the time of eternity that he's always been, that he was a part of creation. Um, then we talked about the beginning of his ministry, the things that he focused on. Last week, we looked at him ushering in a new kingdom, the kingdom of God in your through the Gospels, he talks about the kingdom of God being in you, among you. He gave those parables of the kingdom. He was establishing a new dimension and a new, a new way of looking at things. And, and, uh, and he said, I am king and I have a kingdom, but it's not going to be in, in like what you thought it was going to be. And remember, people began to reject him uh, because he was bringing in a different focus and a different mindset and aspects of that kingdom. Today gets really personal uh, for, for all of us. That's why I've entitled this the question everyone must answer. Uh, the chapter in the story is called Jesus, the Son of God. And so it specifically looks at the passage in the Gospel of Jesus made some amazingly bold claims about himself. 
Because we're going to be looking at those uh, specifically this morning, but the bold claims that Jesus made of himself. And so we'll, we'll dive into those in a moment, but first we're going to go to Matthew 16. We're going to read an exchange that Jesus has with his disciples. And, uh, and so this passage is somewhat of our launching point uh, as we look at what people were saying about him, what he said about himself. And, and uh, as we track along, I want you to get those kind of three thoughts in your mind. What people said about him, what he said about himself, and then the, ultimately the question that everyone must answer. And so... Uh, Again, this is going to get real personal. Don't get lost in fact that Jesus came because of us. When we started in the beginning and God created man for fellowship and relationship, and they, they broke that with sin, and because of that sin, we were all born into sin. You and I are all, we are all sinners, we're all broken, and we need a Savior. And God's plan was to redeem us and rescue us and offer us a new life in Him. And here's the thing, we have no chance without Jesus. We have no chance for that. And so the kingdom of God is not some big scope. It is big scope, but it boils down, and it's very personal. The kingdom of God is very personal to each one of us. The gospel's personal. Jesus is personal. And so as we look at that in these claims that he made, don't miss that, that he came because of us. So we're going to look at, first of all, who's our launching passage, Matthew 16, 13 through uh, 17. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? So he's saying, what's the word on the streets? What are they saying about me? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And so as we, we start this, Jesus is asking his disciples, you know, he's on his way and he's saying, who do people say that I am? What's the, what's the buzz out there? What's being said of me? And so he's not asking this question because he's feeling insecure about his identity. Uh, Jesus was never insecure about himself. He, he's saying something, and he's going to be trying to something else deeper that we'll get to later, but he's talking to them, what's the, what's the word out there? Who do people say that I am? And their answers are interesting. Because they've been hearing the buzz, and, and, and they're saying, well, some say you're John the Baptist, come back to life, and some say Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets that you were, you know, kind of a resurrected prophet in your back. And so, the answers are all over the place, aren't they? So here's what's being said. And so he's established his ministry, he's teaching with authority, he's, you know, revealing that he has authority over death and disease, and he has a, he's teaching with authority, he's establishing his kingdom. And then the answers of him are all over the place. So they recognize that he has some authority by comparing him to one of the prophets. But notice that no one is saying that you are the promised Messiah. The, the, the disciples are saying, no one's really saying that. That's not the buzz out there. Now, there, there were some that believed that, but so the, the main word is not that. And definitely no one is saying that he's the Son of God or that he's God himself in the flesh. Nobody's saying that. Nobody's saying you are the king that the prophets were prophesying about to come and establish the kingdom. A lot of them began to reject it. That they first were, they first wanted to force him to be their king because they saw that he had authority. But then when he started, he wasn't doing what they thought he should do. They began to reject that notion. 
So they're not saying those things because that would have been radical talk. It would have been crazy talk. It would have been blasphemy for the Jews of the day to say he's the Messiah, the Son of God, or God in the flesh. So why didn't they recognize him? Having all of this authority, what was the problem? Again, as we looked over the last couple of weeks, he did not fit into the mold that they had made for him. They had a Messiah, they had a Jesus of their own making, and he did not fit within the form that they had made him. Be, be very careful that you don't try to make Jesus into a form of something where he's going to do this for me if I do this, and he put some sort of formula on him. As we have looked over and over, he did things differently. He went against the mold. He was a Jew. You know, from their point of view, he's a Jew, but he referred to Gentiles. He was a rabbi, but he made friends with sinners. Remember, that was some of the, why are you doing that? Why are you, why are you friends with sinners? Jesus said, that's the reason I'm coming. He said he believed in obeying God's law, but then he would heal people on the Sabbath. He talked about having a kingdom, but he didn't have an army and was not establishing this earthly dominant kingdom, but a spiritual eternal one. And so his kingdom principles weren't what anyone would have guessed. And so that's why the word on the street is that he's not the Messiah. Sometimes, yeah, he's probably he's one of the prophets, and he's John the Baptist come back to life. And so that's that's kind of what the answers were. So the disciples are telling him that the answers are all over the map about who he is. It's no interest. It's not. It's it's no accident that that it's no different today. If you go out and about and you ask people who Jesus is or was, the answers would manifest differently, but it would be similar in nature, wouldn't it? There's all kinds of videos you can watch about, and, you know, people on the street, and they say, you know, who is Jesus? And you'll have all kinds of answers. It's the same kind of thing. You know, Jesus was with his disciples, and he said, who... Who do they say I am? And then you go out and about and people will say stuff like this. He's a good teacher. He was a great prophet that lived long ago. He was a moral man. He was a leader of a movement. He was a great philosopher. He's even respected by other religions in the world. Buddhists respect Jesus Christ. Muslims respect Him. They Actually, some Muslim sects, they adhere to him as a great prophet. It's interesting the other day, if you ever if you track along news, this guy that is very sarcastic, very harsh to Christians and religion in general, Bill Maher. Anybody ever seen any, anything that he's done? Okay. Just watch a couple of videos, you'll, 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 get, the, you'll get the tenor of, uh, I mean, he, he absolutely abhors religion, he thinks it's stupid, and, and he has some very, very harsh things to say. But I saw an interview with him the other day, I thought it was almost laughable. He said, I respect Jesus as a great philosopher. We're going to get in a minute, uh, into in a minute, why you can't do, you can't adhere to that, because of the claims that Jesus made of himself. So, so a lot of these people, that, it's interesting that, that, that they will say these things. Moral teacher, he's a, a you know, leader of a movement, he's a great philosopher, he's a, he was a teacher. But they can't bring themselves to say that he was and is God or he's the Messiah. That they will reject that notion. And so, 
Now we're going to take a look, and that's the kind of the setup of what did Jesus, when he was on the earth, what did he say about himself? So I want to look at some things that Jesus said about himself in the Gospels. We'll look at his own words, and then we'll have to draw our own conclusion to who he was and who he is. So this will get very personal at the end. Some of the statements that he made are directly tied to the Old Testament in that he himself was claiming to fulfill the promises of not only being the Messiah who was to come, but in being God himself. That's why this whole thing of the story is these overarching themes of Scripture that Jesus will tie back to things that came out of the Old Testament. And so he made some unbelievably bold claims. And so because he makes those claims, we have to do something with those. Some of these are called I am statements of Jesus. When he says, I am, remember some of the gospel statements, he says, I am this and I am that. We're going to look at those in a moment. What is significant about him saying, I am? Have you ever thought about that? When Jesus says, I am the light of the world. That's one of the ones we'll look at in that. I, I am the bread of life. That was another one that he said. What is significant about him saying, I am? See, the Jews, when he began to make these things, that's why they, a lot of times they would call him a madman, or they would want to arrest him, or they would want to kill him, and they began to plot against him. It's because when he was making some of these claims, they knew exactly what he was talking about. They were the most learned people of the day. They understood the law better than anyone, and they knew that it, it was the claims that he was making. Because the significance of him saying, I am, it goes back to Exodus 3. Remember, God is calling Moses. He's speaking to him from the burning bush. Israel is being held captive in bondage in Egypt. God raises up Moses to say, he'll go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And he's calling Moses from this burning bush. To, uh, uh, so Moses is having this moment with God, and he's kind of confused because he's never seen or talked to God like this before. Here's a little, and this is not up there, but it's from Exodus 3. It says this in verses 13 and 14. Moses said to God, Well, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? You can see his dilemma. He, you're calling me a leader. I'm going to need to give them a little more than just showing up and saying, Oh, by the way, God told me I'm going to be your leader. And they were like, Yeah, thanks a lot. You know, why don't you leave us alone? And so he's saying, I need to know your name. And here's what God says. God says to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. And so this was more than just a typical name. But it was a statement of who he was. I am the ever-present one. I am the holy one. I am the one who was, who is, who is to come. And always, I will always be. I'm the eternal one. And so when Jesus is making I am statements of himself, the Pharisees knew what he was saying, and it did not sit right with them. And it made them angry. So we're going to look at some of his claims. Here's the first one. I am the gate. This is from John 10. You'll recognize some of these passages. These are the things, again, of what Jesus was saying of himself. John 10, 7-10. Therefore, Jesus said again, Very truly I say to you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, 
Does that sound like a gentle, lowly teacher that's just all about love? I mean, he was all about love, but sometimes love manifests differently. Anyone that was before me that ever claimed anything, they are thieves and they are robbers. But the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate, he says again. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pastors. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. And so when Jesus is using this I am statement, he's using imagery that they would get, they would understand. Gates were access points. When you had the rebuilding of the temple, remember they would put some of the people over those gates. There was the sheep gate. There was the dung gate. I always like the dung gate. It's probably the stinkiest gate around. But, but all these gates were very important access points, and they had different purposes. And Jesus was saying, I am the gate. It's an obvious thing. It's a gate. It's an access point. You don't just jump over the fence unless you're running from a mad sheep or something. But you go through the gate. And so he's using imagery that the people would get. And then he's also making an exclusive statement, isn't he? And he makes these exclusive statements. He said, whoever comes through, enters through me will be saved. I have come that they might have life. In other words, you can't get life through anyone else but me. You can't get salvation through anyone else but Christ Jesus. And so he makes this exclusive statement, I am the gate. This is one that's very famous to all of us. I am the good shepherd. This is in the same context of this other passage, John 10, 11, 20. I am the good shepherd. So I am. He's saying, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. And the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he's the hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of the sheep. And all of us Gentiles said, yes. What is he saying there? I didn't come just for the Jews. This is a universal idea. I died for everyone on planet Earth. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there should be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. What is he saying there? He's speaking of the resurrection. I can lay my life down and I will take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. The Jews who heard these words were again divided. See, here, they, he's saying, I am. Do you, hear, do you hear all the exclusive statements that are going on in this passage? When you think of Jesus as a good teacher, moral philosopher by other religions, this is what he's saying of himself. And then you see at the end, what, is the, what do the Jews say about him? kind of interesting, and that the Jews who heard this, they were again divided. Many of them said, he's demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? They knew what he was saying. They knew that he, what he was claiming. There was no mistake in their minds. And these people, again, they were, they were very smart. They understood the Torah. They understood the Old Testament. And he is tying back. But also, he is revealing himself as the great shepherd. Remember, the great king that they all looked back to was David. 
Because the promise was the Messiah would come from the lineage of David, be the son of David. And so the Psalm, remember Psalm 23, the Lord is my what? I shall not want. They're saying, Jehovah, God Almighty One, the Holy One, He is my shepherd. And then Jesus steps in the scene, and what does He say? I am the Psalm 23 shepherd. That's me. When you sing that song, you're singing about me. And also another place where the promise of him being his shepherd, Isaiah 53, and it's the, about his suffering, but then it says about us, we are like sheep that have gone astray. Each of us have gone to our, our own way, but the Lord has laid on him, the Messiah, the iniquity of us all. He bore our sin because we were like sheep without a shepherd. So he speaks of becoming the sacrifice of sins. Then he speaks of the other sheep, the Gentiles, inclusive gospel. And then he willingly lays his life down and he's speaking of dying and resurrecting. And then the Jews said, he's a madman, he's demon possessed, because they knew what he was saying. Don't lose sight of what he's claiming. Let's look at the third one. I am the resurrection and the life. His friend Lazarus had died. Remember Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, his two sisters and a brother. Well, they're sending word, and, and, and uh, Lazarus has been sick, and he dies. He's been dead for four days. And so John 11, 17, on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two months from Jerusalem. And many Jews came and had come to Mary and Martha to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again at the resurrection of the last day. But Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. So he's just there from talking about Lazarus' temporary death to all of us. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? So he's revealing in a very kind of a private moment to Martha, he's saying, I am victorious over death. Me raising your brother is nothing, but there's something greater going on here. I will defeat all death at, at some point. Anyone who believes in me will never die. And what he's saying is, you will live forever. We will live forever. When these bodies are, they give out. Paul says that they are wasting away. And when they are gone from this earth and we die, we will live forever. This is just a temporary part of the real us. We will live forever. And Jesus is saying, those who would believe in me, I will give them eternal life. And they will never, never die. And we will be with him forever and ever and ever. These are bold claims made by Jesus. Next one is, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In the context of studying in John 13, Jesus is about to be, he's about to be arrested, remember, and he's having this moment in John 13 in the upper room of his disciples. He watches their feet, 
He's talking to them about all that's kind of going to happen. They're very troubled in their hearts. They don't quite even get exactly what's happening. I mean, they can't even put all the puzzle pieces together. It's like, you know, I, you know, part of us thought that you were going to take over, and now you're talking about dying, and we don't get it. And so he's talking about going away. And so in the context here, he says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have not told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? In other words, he said, I'm not here to give you empty promises. If this weren't true, if there was not a place that I'm going to prepare, I wouldn't just throw that at you. This is, you can bank on this. I will come back and take you to be with me that you may also be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. I like Thomas because he's a bit honest. He says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. That's why they're troubled in heart. I mean, you're leaving and we're not getting a lot of information here. We don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? I love it. It was a setup because Jesus was getting ready to reveal something about himself. Jesus answered, I am the way. I am the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. This is perhaps one of the boldest statements that Jesus ever made. I don't care how many scholars or people that just want to look at this from a philosophy standpoint. You have to do some incredible spiritual twister to twist that scripture to mean anything else but what Jesus was saying it meant. It was an exclusive statement if there ever was one. He was saying that he is the way, not a way, not one of many ways, not there's a hundred different paths to heaven, pick your favorite one. He's saying, I am the way. He was saying, I am the truth, not a truth, not one of many truths, not pick a truth, pick a philosophy, a philosophy truth that fits your needs. He's saying, I am the truth. I am the life. Not one of many lives, not try to figure out your own life and your own path. I am the, the life. And then he says, no one. Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic, all those mean no one. No one gets to the Father. No one goes to heaven. You cannot make it to heaven without Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying there. That's his words, not mine. Well, that's narrow-minded. Talk to him about it. He's the most narrow-minded man in history. If there were many ways, if there were many truths, if there were many paths, and if there were all this confusion and all this stuff, then remove the cross because Jesus would not have had to die. He went to the cross and he died this brutal, bloody death because he knew he was the only way to the Father. And then he gives his life as a gift to us, and then many people in history just forget, well, it can't be that. And he's saying, that was a gift to you. That was the extent of my love for you. Come to me. I will give you life to the fullest. I will give you the life that you were meant to live. And you can find true life in me. And then he 
If that's not enough, he makes himself equivalent to God to you. He says, from now on, you do know him. He's talking about that. You do know him and you have seen him. In other words, you want to know God? Take a look at me. I'm God in the flesh. Another place, as he says, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's when it's I am the Messiah. It's interesting that he reveals himself as the Messiah to a very broken woman. That was not by accident, because again, to parallel the passage, remember when the Pharisees rebuked him and they said, you know, your, your teacher hangs out with sinners and scum, and Jesus said, that, that's why I came, because you're all sinners and you're all scum and you need me. Just because you're moral and you act out moral codes and you're always dealing with the Pharisees' hearts, you are still broken and you need a Savior. And so Jesus revealed himself, the identity of Messiah, to a woman at a well who had been married five times, was living with the current man that Jesus. This lady is a wreck and she's a mess. And Jesus has this exchange with her about living water. We're going to get into that in a moment because he, he declares that he's the living water. Because he sees the thirst of her soul, and we all have that thirst. And he's saying to this woman, he said, you know, I will give you water that you'll never thirst again. I, and she's like, give me this water. I, I, I want it. And he's having this exchange. Then they start talking about worship. And so after exchanging with her and ministering to her, he reveals his identity to her. Verse 25 of John 4, the woman said, I know that Messiah called the Christ, and that, that word Jesus Christ, Christ is anointed one, set apart one. The, the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. That's powerful. He's telling this woman, I am the Messiah. She is gets up right there. Her life is changed. She goes into town, and again, she's out in, at the well at the, at, at the heat of the day, probably by herself because that was the time when probably no one else went out there because it was so hot because she was ashamed of who she was. Jesus transforms her life. She goes right in the middle. She says, you guys need to come out here. Listen to this man who told me everything about And the whole town gets saved. Because of this woman saying, he's the Messiah has come. We don't need to look any farther. Here he is. And so he's making his claims very clear. I'm the one who the prophets foretold. I'm the promised one. I am the anointed one. So it leads us in, I am the giver of living water. So John 4, he's talking to her. This is before the moment that he says he's the Messiah. It's again to the woman at the well. Jesus answered, he said, everyone who drinks this water, <clears throat> wasn't that a good cue? My, my throat went out as I said water. <laughs> um, he says to her, everyone who drinks this water, he's using the obvious well. Like, you know, no matter how hydrated you get, you can't hydrate yourself forever. I mean, you know, just by one drink, you, you're going to need water again and again and again. And he says to her, everyone drinks this water will be thirsty again. It's obvious. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And so he is the living water in, in which we quench the thirstiness of our soul. 
But the analogy that Jesus gives here has deeper ties than just that. And that's powerful enough that He is the living water and He quenches our thirst, but there's something very powerful that He gets at. See that passage from Isaiah? This is, this is Isaiah the prophet, okay, about 700 plus years before Jesus comes, Jesus comes to the earth. He says, Come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, give ear and come to me, hear me, that your soul may live. This is a word God speaking here to the prophet. Come to the waters, give ear and hear, and that your soul may live. There's this idea that God is saying, I give waters that you might live. And if that wasn't enough for you, Jeremiah 2.13, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, God, and here, here's the title that God uses for himself in the Old Testament. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own sisters, broken sisters that cannot hold water. So what is the prophet saying? They have forsaken me. I am the spring of living water. Now what they've done is they've set up themselves broken cisterns that cannot hold water. That is us chasing after those things to try to quench the thirsting of our souls. We speak this thing, that thing, the other thing. If, you know, that will make me happy. That will bring me contentment. And, they, and, and, and God, through the prophet, is saying those are all broken systems. The water runs out. Another place that Jesus uses this analogy is in John 7, 37-38. On the last and greatest day of the festival, that's important for us to remember, on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice. He's not whispering it to a couple of people. It's the last day of the festival. He stands up and he makes this proclamation. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. So why is it significant that he would do this in the, 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 the last day of the festival? So I'm glad you asked. I'm going to tell you. Isn't that exciting? So you have these words from the prophets. Isaiah and Jeremiah both talk about God being the living water. You fast forward, you know, hundreds of years later, here's this new rabbi walking the earth. You know, again, the people are, they're, they're divided upon him. They, you know, they, they, they can't figure out who he is. They, you know, some people think he's a madman. And so no one quite knows who he is or, or what to do with him. And so we come to this story in the book of John. John tells us that it's the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles is going on. It's one of the feasts that the Jews adhere to. So the Feast of Tabernacles is a seven-day festival in the fall. It celebrates the harvest, and it's a time to pray for the winter rains to come and restore the land. Kind of like when, what we do. We thank God for the harvest, right? And then we're praying for moisture. And that's kind of what they're doing here. So it's one of the three festivals that the Jews were required to attend. So there are many people packed into Jerusalem at this time. So each day of the festival, the priest would perform a ritual. Here's what they would do. They would walk down to a pool of water. They would scoop up a pitcher of water. They would bring it back to the altar to the temple, and they would pour the water on the altar. They did this for a couple of reasons. One, to ask God for the rain for the next growing season. Farmers coming in, that's, it's, it's, it's a walk of faith, isn't it? You can't make it rain. So they're asking God. They look forward to the day when God's river would come and restore Israel. And that's another prophet in, 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 in Ezekiel. 
But they are knowing this, and again, these prophecies, again, that I just gave Isaiah and Jeremiah, that God is the living water, He's the giver of living water for the natural and for the spiritual. On the seventh day, being the closing day, they did the water ritual one last time. And so, since it's the last day, everyone gathers to watch the ritual. And it is in this context that Jesus comes out and He speaks with a loud voice. It makes the passage way mean a lot different things to you, doesn't it? And then he says, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. I just, I get this to excited. As he's tying back to the Old Testament. If Jesus was just a prophet, if he was just a great teacher, he would have stood up and he would have said, if anyone is thirsty, let him go to God. And he would have quoted maybe Jeremiah. But he didn't say that. He said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. Every Jew there knew what he was talking about. He was claiming to be God. That's what it says, Jeremiah. My people have been too simply forsaking me, the stream of living water. Jesus is saying, I'm God. And they wanted to kill him because they knew he was blaspheming, saying that he was God. Next one is, I am the light of the world. So this is during a time he makes the claim that he is the light of the world. This is where Pharisees are disputing his claims and his testimony of himself. John chapter 8 is very profound of Jesus making some bold claims. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, this is John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So again, what is the significance of this statement? Each night of the Festival of Tabernacles, they also lit a giant menorah candle that was erected in the temple court. It was 75 feet high, and it was lit to remind the people of God's deliverance from the Greeks in the second century. And so they would set this light. It was a light that many would be drawn. You know that prophecy says all the nations will be drawn to your light. And so they would see this light from every window in Jerusalem. And it was a reminder that when we see the light, we remember deliverance. We remember God's deliverance. So the next day, Jesus comes back to the temple to teach, and the first thing he says is this, I am the light of the world. In case you didn't get the water analogy yesterday, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So he's saying, I'm that candle. I'm what brings light to the darkness. I am the one who comes to bring deliverance. But this deliverance will be more than a human army. This will be a deliverance of your soul. This will make you go from death to life, from eternal punishment to an eternal inheritance with the King of the ages and live with Him forever. I'm the light of life. I'm the one who can save you.
So this is the last one. I am the I am. During the dispute with the Pharisees, Jesus makes another bold claim. If you are ever having a conversation with people that deny the deity of Christ or that he comes with it is a great passage, I won't tell you who those people are. They will tend to knock on your doors. But this is a great passage. So listen to what's being said. Again, they're disputing with him because they knew what he was claiming. John 8, 48. The Jews answered him, Aren't we right saying that you are a Samaritan and demon possessed? I mean, they're... This is the ultimate cutdown if you're wondering what they're saying. Americans were despised. They were looked at to be lower than, they were like subhuman. And so they're saying that you're, they're calling Jesus a Samaritan and demon possessed. Not quite the words of Messiah, is it? I mean, they're even like forsaking like good philosophers, good teachers. Because again, they knew what he was saying. Jesus says, I'm not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honor my Father and you dishonor me. I am not speaking glory for myself, but there is one who speaks it. He is the judge. Very truly, I say to you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. What was he saying right there? I am the one that gives eternal life. At this they exclaim, now we know that you're demon possessed. Abraham died and so did the prophets, yet you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father, whom you claim is your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I do know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You're not even 50 years old, they said to him, and you've seen Abraham? Then listen to what he said. Very truly I said to you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him. Why in the world would they do that? But Jesus made himself slipping away from the temple grounds. Why, why did they take up stones to stone him? They knew exactly what he was professing. Jesus had all these Pharisees, these guys, again, they knew the Torah, they knew the law, they knew the prophets, and Jesus looks at them and he says, I am God. Make no mistake about it. And they took up stones to kill him. And so bringing back around to Jesus exchange with his disciples, hope you, you, you didn't forget that. He's on his way to Caesarea Philippi, and he says, Who do men say that I am? And all these words, and they're saying this and saying that, and it was, it was getting to that more piercing question, Who do you say that I am? Peter answered that he's inside the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Blessed are you, Peter. Flesh and blood didn't reveal to you, but my Father in heaven did. The Father in heaven is clear about who Jesus is. And so the question is, are, are you willing to hear that today? Do you have ears to hear what Jesus has said about himself and what the Father says about Jesus? And so the question that everyone must answer is this question. Who do you say that Jesus is? 
as it comes back down again, this is very personal. The kingdom is personal. The gospel is personal. Jesus is personal. He came for you and for me. He came to rescue us. Who do you say that Jesus is? Is he just a great teacher? Is he a moral philosopher? Is he a prophet? Is he a leader of a movement? Well, according to his own testimony, he can't be just those things. Listen to what C.S. Lewis, this is a quote from C.S. Lewis. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. He says, that is one, that is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of which man says that he is a post egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. Go see us. Because of his claims, Jesus can't be a good teacher. Because if you pin people down, well, yeah, he was a good teacher. Then you go, well, he said he was God, he was the Messiah, and God is the only way to heaven. Then they have to backtrack and go, well, do you agree with that? No. Then he's not a good teacher. Because his claims about himself were very clear. And so the question is, what do we do with what he said of himself? Not what would other people say about him. Remember that Jesus saying to the disciples, who do men say that I am? John the Baptist, one of the prophets. And he said, here's the real question, guys. Who do you say that I am? It doesn't matter what the world says about him. It doesn't matter what somebody in your family says about him or doesn't say about him. Who do you say that he is? That's why in this, this, this realm of when people get concerned about, well, what if people haven't heard the message of Christ and they live in a tribe somewhere? God will take care of them. What about you? Who do you say that he is? It's very personal, and a decision has to be made. You either accept Him for who He is and who He said He is, you repent of your sins and you turn your life to Him, knowing that He is the only way, the only truth, the only life. He is the light of the world. He is the river of living water. He is the Savior and the Messiah. Only Him. What do you do with that? Because a decision has to be made. Who do you say that He is? And that's the question that we wrestle with, and we all have to wrestle with it personally. Who do you say that Jesus is? Because he's made it very clear who he is. Now we have to do something with that information. And I think that's a good time to pray. Jesus, we right now just fix our hearts upon you, our gaze upon you. 
Lord, the intention of this message is not just to be offensive in any sense for the sake of offense. But Lord, your message was somewhat offensive to the mind and the, the, of the day, and it's, a, it's offensive in our culture now. Because, Lord, you made some very bold claims of yourself being God, being the river of living life, being the light of the being the way to see life, giving eternal life, being the Messiah, being the anointed one. Lord, I pray right now that we would wrestle, God, with that question, that, Lord, we would, in our own hearts, that we would we would come to that, that, that place of where we proclaim you to be who you are in our own lives. And, God, what that means, because if we say that you are who you are, God, that, that means that something has to change in me. That means I have to repent of my sin. And it goes back, Lord, to your core message of saying, repent, turn to God, and we turn to you. Because there in that place, God, we find eternal life. We find true life. The life we were meant to live. If we call you Lord, if we call you Savior, what does that mean to me? That, Lord, we would turn from our ways of doing things, Lord, even as you called the people of the Old Testament through the prophets, turn from your ways and turn to God. And Jesus, you said, when you started preaching, you said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. That we would turn from our way of living and we would turn to your way. And Jesus, today, Lord, in this church, we, we proclaim that you are God and you are the light of the world. You are the river of living water. You are the Messiah. You are the way. You are the truth. You are the life. And I pray, God, that we would boldly proclaim that to the world, God, in humility, Lord, not in arrogance, but we would live in such a way that, Lord, you are who you said you are. Lord, more than our words, I pray that our lives would reflect your glory to the world that we live in. That people would see that we live for you. And it would change and transform life. So God, we love you today and we thank you for who you are. Thank you, Jesus, for what you said of us. You are the great I am. God, help us to live that long in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. I hope you have a wonderful day, wonderful week ahead. And God, may the Lord be with you. Potato, potato, cookies, and music on that, that'd be great.